Good morning, vendors and non-vendors alike, and welcome to the Republic City Dispatch, a radio program covering Nickelodeon's Legend of Korra series. This week, things are tense in the Southern Water Tribe and the Korra family as this cold civil war heats up. And now, without further ado, your regular hosts who will take down that shark squid once and for all, Matt, Dave, and Devendra. Hello, I am Matt Patches, and we are back here with Republic City Dispatch, and we have the full crew here today. Of course, we have Dave Gonzalez. Hello. Uh, but now we have the married Devendra Hardawar. Hey, guys. Has yeah, life changed? Totally married now. Are you, this is a big deal. <laughs> it was a big, it was a really busy weekend. I uh, had a lot of family over. Um, it was kind of a small wedding, though, so we haven't, it, it doesn't feel real to me yet. <laughs> but I am definitely married. This is a thing that's oh happened. Oh, my God. Congratulations. And you're Thank spending you. your honeymoon watching Cora. So that is a <laughs> great idea. On the beach. On Ember Island. I'll make that happen. Yeah. In your dreams. Well, I hope you'll take you. I hope you'll be a better father than Aang. Oh, this, this. Well, we'll it's get so there. It's so sad. Um, so sad hearing all this. <laughs> I, I have major thoughts on that. But we are getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, this week, we saw Civil War Part 1, um, which is definitely predicting some doom and gloom for Civil War Part Two, I would say. Um, but Dave, why don't you run through what we saw this episode? All right. <clears throat> we pick up where we left off with the Northern Water Tribe occupying the Southern Water Tribe. Unalak wants to keep a lockdown on the Southern Water Tribe and needs Korra to open the Northern Spirit Portal, which will do some sort of teleporting thing. Uh, the occupation pisses off Varric, who immediately proposes forming a resistance, while Tonrock seems like he might join, even when Korra tries to avoid taking a side. At the Southern Air Temple, Iki is gone missing, so Bumi, Akaya, and Tenzin search the island and argue about their childhood. Foolish Bolin is looking for a way to break up with Eskus, who doesn't have to live in the north in icy bliss, but after getting some advice from Mako, is instead threatened with bodily harm. Korra can't remain neutral and liked at the same time, so she goes and visits her mother, Senna, and Senna tells Korra that they just wanted a normal childhood for their daughter, and that's why she was kept in the Southern Water Tribe. Senna lets slip there is a planned rebellion, and Korra stops a group of masked waterbenders from kidnapping Unalak. She convinces Unalak, who put the rebellious benders on trial, and then goes home. Thankful to see that her father hasn't rebelled. But then Unalak shows up to arrest Tonrock and Senna for... I, you know, plotting a rebellion. This is just like my high school experience, um, <laughs> down to down to the assassination plots and uh, water bending. Anyway, one a quick note, slightly off topic, but before we get too far into this episode, uh, we are urging people to head to iTunes and subscribe to Republic City Dispatch, and even more, uh, leave us a review and a rating. Uh, it helps us get out on iTunes and get more people talking about Cora and involved in the conversation. So again, rating, review, some words on iTunes, and subscribe. It would help us out so much. Thank you. Anyway, I, I, I want to jump in... I think we need to pick up from the very beginning of this episode because it's such a fluid continuation from the end of the premiere. Um, obviously, I think Cora feels like she made a major mistake, uh, or at least she's starting to doubt herself. I think that's really interesting because she continues to follow Unalak um, throughout this episode. I mean, where where is she in uh, emotionally speaking in your guys' minds? I mean, I, mm. she's obviously confused, but what... I mean, what is confusing her? What's pulling her in all directions here? Why, I, I why is this like, not clear cut? I think it's really interesting how they're exploring basically her naivety error. Yeah, because it's it's 
before she was sort of like being directed in her life by her father and um, you know all the people trying to train her. Now she's just blindly following Unalak, and that's it, it's funny. It's funny. It's a rebellion from all the other people controlling her, though she's just letting herself be controlled by somebody else. It's like very typical teenager rebellion in a way too. But she's definitely confused by all of it. I love the fact that you know even though she opened the uh, the southern portal, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means it's a very complicated thing. You know, it can be it's something that they haven't seen in a long time, but it also means, you know, potentially the beginning of a civil war. Right. I kind of love that they're keeping the layers of everything happening here. There's nothing is truly bad or right entirely. Yeah, I love that. this. Opening the spirit portal is not blowing up the Death Star. Right. This is not a, an act that, oh, it's clear cut. We have we have saved the day here. Yeah. We don't actually know really why Unlock wants to open the spirit portal, I don't think. I mean, he says that he wants to create some sort of stargate to the um, <laughs> to to the north. They'll so sell that tickets. They have, yeah, yeah, exactly. Come ride the South Pole. Uh, uh, You'll get between portal. the north and the south instantly. <laughs> it's it's like a World's Fair type machine. <laughs> it's like that Total Recall. What the the new Total Recall that like subway or the train that goes like straight through the core of the earth i think that's what they're <laughs> oh, yeah. you'll do it through through spirit mode or oh, something what a wonderful idea that was in a terrible <laughs> terrible movie anyway um yeah so i think it's really interesting that what they're presenting with uh, us with and and the things that Korra has quote unquote solved so far are much trickier uh, especially compared to book one you know i know there are a lot of fans out there who have frustrations with Korra right now because it seemed like she had herself put together um, by the end of book one, you know, Tenzin was training her. She learned how to airbend and she went into avatar mode and she saved the day. It was great. Um, but now suddenly she realizes that the world is filled with people who can train her, people who can instruct her that um, have conflicting points of view. You know, not mm. every teacher is the same, which I I mean, I remember feeling very weird about that going off to college and seeing like a crazy professor with really um, <laughs> liberal ideas or like a conservative professor who is right. teaching me about God or something. And, and just you have to decide what you believe. Mm -hmm. And it does have to be a melding of all those ideas. Um, but she I mean, it's not easy to do that when all the leaders in your life are on opposite ends of the spectrum. That's really frustrating. And related to you. And related to you. Well, They're not playing up as much, but I, it has to be the only way Korra's actions make emotional sense to me in like an empathizing way is that she spent her entire life being cloistered up knowing she was awesome. And then suddenly like her uncle comes and says, like, I always knew you were awesome and I believe you're ready to make all these decisions now. Whereas everybody else is telling her that she's still immature and bratty. And whether or not Unalak is right, that's mm -hmm. definitely a controlling, trusting sort of thing. I, and so I got chills when Unalak told her that um, Tenzin had, did not have faith in you, or he lacked faith in you, which was a very right. Emperor Palpatine. Very Emperor Palpatine, very like Magneto <laughs> as well, yeah. just in terms of like building up his like yeah his rebellious well, band of mutants. Magneto might be a great comparison here because mm -hmm. Magneto. We do see Magneto as bad in the context of one-off X-Men adventures. But if you know Magneto as a character over years of mythology, or even in the movies, you know, he starts off yeah. as a good guy, and he just has different points of view than sure. other people, and it runs, it creates friction. He's not a, is he a bad guy? I wouldn't call Magneto a bad guy, 
necessarily. You, you look at like a movie like X two, right? X two, I think the first X Men movie kind of set up, yeah, Magneto, the big villain, sure, but X two kind of shows like why you kind of need to work together against the bigger threat. So I just, I'd be really interested to see how Korra kind of deals with that. Like maybe the spirit world opening it up does not do what Unlock thinks it will. You know? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's we've never we've been told that spirits being in our world were very rare at the time of Aang and I would imagine now I mean we've seen a lot of angry spirits but we haven't seen like season one of uh, book one didn't have any personified spirits that I could remember off the top of my head yes Um, and so it's interesting that uh, Unalak seems to want to create a portal in which to enter the spirit world that allows you not only to teleport, but he definitely says, like, enter the spirit world, which it seems weird because we've never seen somebody do that before. Even when mm-hmm. Aang was in the spirit world, he was, like, astral projecting. Right. Yeah, he hasn't been stepping into it. Yeah. That um, seems like a weird dis- unbalance that's going to happen. Like, I- I- I'd be surprised if the only thing that happens when you step into that portal is you get teleported. You know, I, I find it very interesting, kind of going back to Unalak here for a second, um, and how, you know, everyone on Tumblr after the premiere was like, obviously he's up to no good. He's the bad guy. Wake up, Korra. Um, but he's so seductive and so he's not Tarlock to me, who I think when we saw Tarlock in book one, we were like, well, that guy has ulterior motives and yeah. he's, he probably is evil. Or his, poor his... Lock names, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What does that mean? What is that lineage? Although Tarlock, I think, ends with a K, yeah, and yeah. Unalak ends with a Q. Well, um, I mean, it's the waterbenders <laughs> that are problematic. When Noah talk became Oman, oh. like it's all there. Um, but I think, from an animation standpoint, and what they're doing to kind of toy with the, this idea that maybe I think they're preying on our expectations of Unalak being just absolutely bad. Um, that's not just our expectations. Like anybody who's sitting in a throne room all by himself with shadow cast over his that's face. That's convention, yeah. That's like that's telling us to feel something, and it's been so obvious that it just seems like oh, the rug's going to get pulled out from under us at some point. Well, that, that's what I mean. Do you think that when you put him in a shadowy room and backlight Cora, so that she feels very low status in that scene, that's is that actually just being overt about? Um, the, the relationship there or what's underneath what we're not seeing or is that uh telling us or it's tapping into that part of our brain that knows what shadowy lighting means and yeah uh, i think it's ju- juxtaposition so it's very distinctly in service of that scene where Unalak's going to essentially agree with the avatar and say some very nice things to her but the entire time we're supposed to notice that He's not coming right. from a place that feels right. I spend a lot of time watching Unalak's facial animation and, like, watching it match with the voice. Like, even when he says things that I, you know, red alert, sirens go off in my brain, um, I'm, I watch his face and he just seems comfortable. You know, he just seems like a guy who knows his convictions and knows what he wants in this world. And even if it sounds kind of eerie, I think he's just a cool dude. <laughs> Maybe that's a bad way of describing it. He, he, he's, he's, he's a calm dude. Yeah, he's not evil. He's mm-hmm. just um, passionate about Faithful. faith and spirituality. Yeah. I, think, I, I think we've always seen like uh, the idea of belief 
as kind of a thing in this in the original Avatar series and in Korra as well. Um, but honestly, it's one of those things that fascinates me because I'm not a religious person, but I am fascinated by the idea that people can latch yeah. on to something and have it shape their lives. And I kind of love how that is. That's kind of the crux of this whole season. But And, and to degrees, I think. Right, what's, right. what's interesting to me is that Korra, being the Avatar, must be a spiritual person. We know that spirits exist in this world, so in some ways she she must be spiritual. She must be faith-based in some way. Um, but to the degree that Unalak is, feels dangerous to us. And it feels dangerous to Korra. She's confused because she sees oppression behind what Unalak wants for, like, spreading the faith across the Southern Water Tribe and, you know, putting up a giant ice wall and trapping people in a police state and being like, you must believe, you must believe. Um I, I, before the podcast, sent you guys information on what's been trickling into my mind about this whole setup, which is actually um, a, a civil war, a religious civil war that happened in China in the mid-1800s called the Taiping Rebellion. This might be a crazy theory, um, but I see Unalak as kind of a proxy for this guy. Uh, I'm going to probably pronounce this wrong. Um, Hong Xia Chuan. Okay, and he believed that, and this was mid 1800s. Um, he was a very studious guy who continued to fail at life, um, but he had a vision. A spirit came to him, a presence, uh, as I read in some University of Oregon article on him. <laughs> a presence <laughs> came to him and told him that he was the son of, or he was the younger brother of Jesus. And that so his father was God and his older brother was Jesus. And now he is the next step in the lineage and that he needs to kind of spread Christianity across China. Um, and he did it in a murderous way. I mean, he 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 saw debaucherous people across China, people who were not faith based. And he felt like he had to wipe them out in order to kind of cleanse China. So they ended up killing like 20 million people. And I, I don't know. I see reflections of that. I don't think um, Breik would would entertain the idea of a religious driven <laughs> civil war without some sort of real foundation. I don't know if you guys think connecting it to the Taiping uh, uh, civil war is crazy, but <laughs> I, I see I reflections there. I kind of love how geeky we're getting about this. So it's definitely it feels like a mixture of things. This definitely sounds like something uh, reminiscent of it. Um, I saw shades of uh, the American civil war there too, um, not directly. But sort of like how uh, Joss Whedon co-opted some ideas from the Civil War for Firefly, just the idea that the Southerners were like kind of doing their own thing. They're trying to maintain independence. Northerners coming out of nowhere to take control, to unify things. Um, that I think it's a very basic sense there. And you can understand like this is something cultures have dealt with time and time and again. I mean, come on, guys. The episode is called Civil War. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested to see – if what sort of shape this civil war takes, if Core mm -hmm. is going to be able to, you know, put a dampener on it, or if it's going to elevate to the point that Unalak wants it to, where it's sort of a unified water tribe bringing the spirits to the rest of the world. Because we've been predicting this problem since like episode three of book one, where it's like something's up with Republic City and with Korra. There's just a complete lack of spirituality here. We assume that. Amon was going to bring that, but they've ended up bringing it with an entire other book 
So I'm interested to see what the downside of being balanced is, because it seems like that's where this is going. There's too many stylistic similarities between stuff that Unalak's doing mm-hmm. and stuff that Juan is uh, doing or represented by, um, to the point where I don't know... What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, uh, I think there's a post that we put up on Republic City Dispatch of how the Juan statue um, has sort of a swirling wood pattern around it that is very similar to when Unalak uh, mm. calms the spirits and then also uh, you could match some of the symbols that we saw in the dark spirits from the southern water tribe to uh, an ornament behind the wand statue's head which just makes me think that maybe like Unalak isn't necessarily dealing with the powers of good here uh, as much as he's you know trying to open up a you know, a gozer hole, if we're going to talk about Yeah, it seems like Juan, Juan could be that guy who had to sacrifice <laughs> himself to kind of seal some sort of portal to the spirit world, and if you break him open, then you can... Well, I'm, also, maybe that the, what we've been told are dark spirits aren't uh, bad. They could be Juan projections or the spirit world trying to communicate with the Avatar in some sort of way. But, I mean, if... Korra is working for Unalak's objective and we don't trust Unalak's objective then it's possible that everybody that's antagonizing Korra is actually just seeing her as a tool of Unalak. They don't really know that they're dealing with the Avatar. I was really glad to see uh, another side of Varric in this episode. I think last in our last episode, talking about the premiere, I was a little worried if he was a throwaway character, if he was just going to be this comedic voice, um, which we need. Uh, and we get a little bit from Bolin and Mako, who are sidelined, have been sidelined in the whole book, but because there's not <laughs> as much time for them. Um, and, and the roles that Mako plays, or especially Mako, is about being sidelined and that feeling. Um, yeah. So it's appropriate. Uh, but I was really glad to see Varric kind of step up and be the um, – I was trying to think. I mean, is he, is he the Gaius Longinus of, of this? Is he plotting <laughs> Caesar's – assassination and I thought uh, you were going to say the Gaius Baltar no I was too well that actually works yeah (laughs) how how is that how is that connection is he named after is Gaius named after the I would assume like if you're naming somebody Gaius in a uh uh, have you seen Battlestar Galactica, Matt? I have seen the first season of Battlestar oh come on but yeah yeah. he is yes I know um yeah I, I could see relations to both actually um, but yeah, I was I was entertained by his uh, rebelliousness, and it's interesting to see people. I mean, to see these non-spiritual people kind of pick up pitchforks and go after Korra. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, he he's the flamboyant counterpart to Hiroshi Sato from last season, right. who was very anti-establishment, but also a huge businessman. Whereas Varric is a huge businessman and totally likes the way things are. He loves his money. That you know, shipping herring or whatever, halibut, I forget which one. Yeah, stinky product. halibut. Yeah, shipping that all over the world. But I I really like the sort of plutocratic element of it in the sense that the Southern Water Tribe is fighting in a religious war, but it seems like the planner of their rebellion is only worried about monetary aspects. So it's putting it in a weird position where you could see where Korra could sort of be in the middle, especially as the right. Avatar who's supposed to be spiritual. Because you don't want to support that if right. you're Korra. I mean, you feel bad because the Northern Water Tribe's occupying something, and that doesn't feel right, but you don't want to also say, like, yay money, boo spirits. And, and uh, 
Unalak's line to Korra midway through the episode where he says, um, as the Avatar, you must remain uh, neutral in this conflict. I'm just like, that That sucks. <laughs> that's the worst feeling. And that's like the last two months of U.S. world news headlines kind of flooding into yeah. Avatar. Oh, boy. Into the Legend of Korra. <laughs> I don't want to get Dave started on that. Uh, uh, but seriously, not being able to take a, a stance is a huge problem because you want – to help everyone, but you also can't support most of what's going on. So what sure. do you do? And this is why people spin in circles, uh, not to get too political, but uh, this is why people can't make decisions or ones that will please everybody. Right. Uh, l- looking at it like from another religious angle, like there's the show has always had a lot of like um, Buddhist uh, philosophy mm-hmm. within it. And I think what they're really pushing forward here is the idea that Korra has to follow the middle ground, basically the middle path. And that's why they're showing us they're setting up the extremes. So we have Varric and the really uh, capitalistic, very consumeristic side. And we have Unalak and his very spiritual side. And I think Korra is going to have to learn how to kind of move forward somewhere in the middle. Be that and, bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what they've always explained the Avatar to be. Yep. You know, they are the bridge from the physical to the spirit world. They are all of it in one manifested uh, person. And... um. We're yeah. going to learn more about that in, sure. a, in a few weeks. <laughs> Actually, I want to also bring that up. We had a couple, a little bit of discussion on the website and on the podcast about the uh, Aang children and who was oldest and who <laughs> yeah. was Benders. And I was very happy to see that addressed this week. Just it's as like a they reminder. Knew. It's like they knew. <laughs> I think it's a very good reminder for people that we're not dealing with something like Avatar The Last Airbender where it's one continuous story. And if we're going to need to know something that's important, we're going to be reminded. So that's good for all of us to keep in mind as we're analyzing each book. I I really do want to talk about that aspect of this episode because it's such a major subplot, and I think it really lends itself in an interesting way to the major theme of this season, which seems to be superiority. Or the show in the whole show. Um, I don't know if Bryke are obsessed with this or not, but, I mean, book one is about superiority. It's about benders feeling more important or or taking a larger role in the world than non-benders can, and now we see superiority filtering into the religious people and and how Uh, they believe that uh, being spiritual is superior. And now I think it's really interesting to have Tenzin have this unknowing superiority um, above Kaya and Bumi because he was Aang's quote-unquote favorite, which I I wouldn't... I think you're misreading this. Why? why? (laughs) I think it's not about superiority. It's about... It, when it comes to your family, do you do the thing that's best for your family or do you do the thing that you think is best for the world? Because that's what Korra is going to have to do. That's what Tonrock already did by keeping Korra uh, where she needed to be. That's where we sort of get an idea that Aang might have spent more time with Tenzin because he had to keep an entire race going. Uh, and hmm. uh, Kaya says that Aang was always more concerned with saving the world than he was with raising his kids. But it's still a ramification of those choices. I'm not saying – I think that is, is a major part of um, the thematic drive of this season. But I do but think – There's no way that they could come down and say that you know one of those is better than the other. At least with mm-hmm. the evidence that we've seen thus far, it seems to be keeping us on this line, the same line that Core is going to have to do, which is acknowledging that – both sides have benefits and consequences. Well, I'm not saying that the show will eventually acknowledge that some something is superior. I'm just saying it's a struggle to suddenly feel like you have superiority. I mean, I don't think Tenzin ever thought of himself above 
Kaya and Bumi, although maybe he did a little bit because he tells her that, well, you're the oldest, except I had to act like the oldest. Um, and then he has a wake-up call, the fact that Kaya moved her whole life to be with Katara in her old age, and that he wasn't, you know, his his siblings were not on vacation with him riding the koi. <laughs> <laughs> although I think that's kind of... Elephant koi? That's, it's funny. I, I think it's an interesting element they threw in there, although can we imagine that Tencent is so freaking aloof of like, uh, I, I don't know. It's an interesting element that somebody so wise can be so... Uh, I, I guess aloof is the word. Like, well, just has no clue. That's always been Tenzin's problem, going. hasn't it? I mean, <laughs> since the beginning, he says, you know, Korra, you have to stay on Airbender Island and practice, practice, practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he lets her off the chain and she goes to play professional bending and suddenly she's learning. Yeah. There. He, he, but, he's so well, stuck in his ways and so stuck with, like, you yeah. have to preserve history that's more tradition versus you know progress and modernity but just in terms of understanding like your family and things (laughs) that actually happen like it was one thing that kind of surprised me it seemed like a completely different character yeah interesting well we're we we are seeing vacation tenzin yeah (laughs) yeah so let's let's let him off the hook there um i i want to give a shout out to uh i think i'm pronouncing his name right richard ryle who voices boomy who he was the um, jump to conclusions map guy in Office Space. <laughs> I think he's. Um, I think that is an amazing performance. <laughs> that is energetic and really funny, but also really sad. There's a lot of sadness going on in Boomy, especially in this episode where he's like, I, you know, he he gets riled up because he wants to show off that he can do everything a bender can do without bending. So he's, can I lay out the prediction, guys? Please. Boomy's going to die this season. <laughs> oh, man. You picked someone different than who I picked. Why do you oh. think Boomy's going to die? Why are you saying this to me as I tell you I love Boomy? I'm, t- I'm just keeping... Well, that's exactly why. First of all, if this was Joss Whedon... This was Whedon, your Bolin's going to die. If this was Joss Whedon making the show, he would pick the character you love the most and then kill him off in the worst possible way. Uh, this is a kid's show. It's a little different. Um, I did feel that way about Bolin. And by the way, Bolin is not safe. Like, he is still right now kind of one of our few safe like happy people right now but i think boomy is taking over more of the really like fun uh role while there is a deep sadness to him right. and i think that makes him an even that more makes him sacrificial choice. exactly yeah it, it's a very interesting choice if at some point he has to do something to protect his family like doing a responsible thing for the very first time uh, that would be interesting to see. I just like throwing this out there too to rile up the fans. So this that's the one <laughs> you are trolling. My death watch is you are trolling this season. Can we, can we just talk? I mean, maybe we touched upon this already, but it's such a talking point after this episode about you know Ang's a bad father. Ang's a bad father. I keep seeing that everywhere, and people being infuriated <laughs> by it as if somehow it undercuts the f- original show, which yeah. no, it doesn't. Um, and it's so hard, much more complex guys. than that. Absolutely. It's kind of funny, like, throwing the stuff in there, like, into what's basically a kid's show, because we're not used to seeing things like this. We're not used to right. seeing, like, the complications of parented. Um, Especially if you're a young person yeah. who's never given a, a thought about the complexity of your parents' relationships <laughs> or what they go through to be a good parent, quote unquote. I mean, and and to get surface level details that we'll know will be dug into later. I mean, I imagine this is going to be a continued point of exploration. Um, we young people don't think about their parents like that and the choices they need to make. And bad is such a a simple way to write off 
the entire yeah. relationship of, of Aang and his children. I think it really showed the humanness of Aang, which I kind of liked in retrospect, too, because, you know, he's he is the Avatar, but he can't he can't do everything. He can't be perfect in every way. And there are definitely other aspects to the childhood that they're leaving out right now. Like, you know, while Tenzin was probably out training and working for, you know, most of his time, the other kids maybe had a little time to live their lives and have a life. Tenzin never really had that, and we've—that's the sense we've always gotten. That's why he's so stuck in his ways. A little—he's always a stick in the mud because it's all he knows. Right. Um, it's interesting. So, yeah. It's interesting that Tenzin, who spends the most time with Aang, who we know it can be so silly, right, um, becomes so staunch, and yet Boomy, obviously bloodline from Aang because he <laughs> is child Aang. He's just all <laughs> over the place. He would be uh, sledding on, uh, on on penguins if he could. Yeah. I was uh, on Twitter when this episode was airing, and a lot of people thought when Boomy fell down the waterfall, they're like, did they just kill Boomy? And I sort of laughed just at the <laughs> thought that that would happen. Where he's like, I could do it, trip. you benders. Boom, boom. Boomy's dead. Yikes. Uh, where is Iki? I don't know. Because we're, we're past Janora's moment with the statue, I feel like. Time has passed from Oh, that, that was Janora. Oh, I was yeah. Getting yeah. That was Janora. And- they were also they told Pema they were making fun of her, so it's interesting that Iki's now getting isolated when we thought it was going to be the Janora show. Yeah, yeah, that's it's a strange B plot line because it takes these characters. Well, it, it does a good thing because it separates you know all of Aang's kids together, so they could do go on a little journey. But at the same time, like what the heck is going on with Iki? Right, I don't know. I wonder if it has to do with airbending the lineage the acolytes like the praise for being an airbender i have no idea i would love it if she showed up with her tattoos as we know <laughs> she said she wanted them and she wanted lightning bolts but you have to invent an air form but she is in the place where you get your air tattoos oh that's too silly that's too crazy <laughs> no this, because this- it's all just supposed to be about one child is gone so the original ang children get to argue about their problems. Really? You don't think that they're going to find her in a place that will be revelatory and have anything to do with the plot? This is just an excuse to get the the three kids out on the road. Yes. Ah, I think that we're doing a lot. You'll just be at home. It's something like that. I'm kind of confused by the Air family's side plot being so far away from the the Southern Water. I feel like it has to collide in a major way. I mean, I guess that's the Wan statue angle i mean it will drive everyone back into one place uh, yeah, but it is we'll interesting able- to keep them so separated it reminds got, me like, of three episodes for that to happen i don't it still seems like a lot of distance to cover considering tenzin still has no idea what's going on down there i mean a lot of shows i mean to continue to bring back star wars uh i mean this is essentially what happens in in empire everybody kind of goes their separate ways only to collide for return of the jedi um and I'm glad I didn't have to mention the prequels here because I keep <laughs> – I, I think in my Vulture recap, I, I mentioned that like a like a daredevil stunt driver, this episode rides dangerously close to the Trade Federation mumbo-jumbo yeah, really? from the prequels. The blockade. I'm sorry. It, I mean it does. I mean when you have Varric talking about trade negotiations and like not being able to ship his stuff and, and blocking off the harbor. And, yeah. it, I mean but, it, there's a little bit like of that. It's like an aside whereas the entire plot of Phantom exactly. Menace is about yeah, True, true. This, this is not that bad. Next um, week, show trials. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to wrap up 
discussion on this uh, episode by just talking about the action a little bit, because um, I know Devendra loves loves a bit of action. But this oh. episode didn't have a whole lot, and and but I think it, it kind of caps it in the right way. It's um, a progression uh, of a, a talky progression, nonetheless, but um, one that caps with a pretty cool action scene at the end. I was curious because they've switched animation. Um, studios for this for this book. I wonder if you feel, and th- it's a different director. Um, it's not it's mm-hmm. not the same guys doing every episode like last you season. Know more about the animation studio switch because I yeah I've noticed some things are a little different, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Yeah, I, I well I think too we discussed this a little last episode about just the atmospheres being different. I, I don't know a lot about the two studios mm-hmm. or why the switch was made. Um, we can probably look into that and discuss more later, but. Okay. Um, um, I, I do think that the animation looks different because we're not in Republic City. Sure, um, sure. But I, I feel like there's the a little more. There are more pastels this time. It seems yeah. a little more trying to look hand drawn, whereas uh, season one you know had some of that, but at the same time there was still a lot of digital. There were still a lot of digital elements that made it seem like a modern show. This one seems a little more laid back. I don't know. Mm. I um I thought of you though, Devendra, because mm-hmm. I know how much you like Lin Bei Fong and her crazy chain action scenes. Oh yes. Uh, yes. and I felt like Cora got some pretty amazing like she spins rope. And I don't know if she's <laughs> bending or not. It didn't actually look bending. like she was bending. It looked like yeah. she was um just flailing around like ribbon dancing with this rope and tying people up, which was pretty amazing. Thought, yeah. There there was some really fun creative uh, stuff there. Um, also because that was an interesting scene because she was kind of worried that it was her father too. So she couldn't like unleash everything she had. Um, it's, a, it's just a really interesting moment of restraint, I guess. And maybe that's something we're going to see more of. Like, Although hey. she does, she does <laughs> um, spin him out. I yes. mean, he's escaping. She thinks it's her father, and then she yeah. kind of twirls him up and hits him under the ground. <laughs> so that's well. That's I mean, a, that's a move. I love the thing I still love about Korra's combat versus all the combat we saw in the original Avatar. Is you just get this idea that she knows exactly what she's doing. Like all the yeah, yeah. all the big moves, like sliding, making a you know weird ice slide or spinning these guys with air bending and then like launching yourself with earth bending it seems like Korra is most comfortable when she's at least fighting right. something because it all becomes so effortless she's so in the zone you yeah, loved her asami run i did love mm-hmm. her asami well i mean Which, i the equalist ninja the equalist run. run yeah well, yeah. I think it's uh, well. Yeah, I've seen people compare it to Asami and the Equalist. I think that's precision fighting. I think that's because Korra is better trained than Aang was, or any of these people. I mean, she's she actually is, trained. Yeah, yeah. So because Aang was just fight. basically a kid, like he knew some of it. But it's the difference between like I don't know if you guys do much tabletop role playing, but it's the difference between. Oh, like, I do. Okay, <laughs> it's the difference between starring somebody at a very low level and just you're trying to come to terms with your power and you see progress over time versus starting a game, you know, 15 or 20 levels in where you're already able to do really cool stuff. But at the same time, like you have to learn how to control some of those capabilities. It's a nice change. It's definitely nice to see. It makes for some really good action. Too. Oh, my God. You've just yeah. inspired me to go off and write my D&D <laughs> Cora, Cora inspired D and D campaign. Oh, yeah, it's not that hard. And first of all, you wouldn't use D and D for Cora. You would use, I would say, you'd use a White Wolf system. So you know, there are a lot of the the good thing about shows like this, about anime series, and really anything, is that if you want to play a role playing version of this world, uh, you can you can probably find a system that'll right. work for you. Can you can find the somebody. Rules. I'm make, I'm putting the call out now. Somebody needs to adapt a system to Legend of Cora. It's so easy. I mean, and especially it's very easy. the iconography of Cora lends itself so easily 
to role playing, tabletop role playing. Oh this is gosh. something we'll have to do. Maybe I, we'll record it. I know. I'm getting really We'll record giddy. it like the uh, the Dan Harmon podcast. If, if right? someone adapts the system, we could totally no, we, we could totally to, figure this out. We need to one up that. We need to do the video. <laughs> playing like will wheaton on his uh ah, his board game show i see anyway, well it's, it wouldn't be that hard just let's we could adapt like white wolf one of their oh things like gosh. i like exalted or something anyway my, my point is like we're definitely seeing a character who's far further along in her like training and her abilities and it's, it's just fun it's just fun to watch yeah why don't we wrap up by uh rattling off some of our favorite moments from this episode davindra since you weren't <laughs> here with us yesterday i'm curious if there's anything that kind of stood out to you Oh, let me see here. I kind of love the extended romantic tribulations of Bolin. It's always fun. Uh, I think uh, it's Aubrey Plaza, right? Yes. Yes. And she is great. She is fantastic. Oh, what a fun character. And she she kind of I wish she would do more voice acting because she she's like does it very well, or at least there's a particular <laughs> character I think she's doing very well. Um, her hyena and, laugh is one of the most tight, <laughs> terrifying things I've ever heard yeah, in my entire life. It sounds life. like choking. Uh, I know. It's so great, but also, it feels like an old school dub laugh, like uh, or an old school like kung fu movie mm, laugh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and the first two episodes, I just I, I loved so much of it. Like it, just seeing a whole different side of this world, seeing more of Cora's family, and seeing all that built up. Um, I think one of the things I truly love, though, is how. It resembles certain aspects of Princess Mononoke, of just like this idea that, you know, the spirit world is a thing. Everybody knows it exists and people can communicate with it, but something is terribly, terribly wrong. Uh, In a weird way, I think Unalak is almost like a... uh, a like bastardized version of Mononoke's lead or, or a bastardized mm. version of somebody who would be a good guy in Mononoke. Um, so, right, because yeah. that movie is so much about like we need yes. the spirits in our lives. This is necessary. <laughs> and Capitalism Kora is, is a bit more amorphous on that point. Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. Um, so I don't know. It, it definitely, those two episodes definitely made me want to rewatch Princess Mononoke, which I think the Blu-ray just came out or is coming out soon. Really? I, yes. I've been wondering that. I've been yes. waiting for a, a pristine totally copy happening. of that. I need to. So I kind of love that. Loved all the action. Um, just great to have the series back too. Like it's, it, it feels good. Random point. I have seen Hayao Miyazaki's new film, The Wind Rises, Ooh. and I would urge anyone near main cities like New York or Los Angeles to see it when it comes out. His last movie too, right? It's his last film. It is. It has yet to be dubbed. It'll come out later. It'll come out in 2014, dubbed we, we with American voices. Yeah. But I would urge people to see it in its original uh, Japanese language version. It is. It is a tearjerker. It's not a fantasy like Mononoke, but it's certainly oh, a man. tearjerker. Um, Dave, what was your favorite moment from this film? Or this uh, well, show? we got more Pabu, which is always just. But not enough Pabu. I'm never enough Pabu. You kidding? There could be a whole Pabu spinoff. There wouldn't be enough Pabu. And no Naga. And no Naga. In an earlier time, we would have like Pabu shorts, like towards the credits or something. Like, didn't I remember a lot of early shows used to have stuff like that, where like the side characters would just do fun things. Yeah. The the last Airbender DVDs had the Chibi Avatar shorts, Mm, so I would love like a. Whatever, we'll get to Pabu's Lost Days in I was about to say, are we getting, are we web series, something. Yeah, we'll do it. But uh, I would have to say that surprisingly my favorite moment was Korra talking to her mother. Mm. Just because it seems like 
the one relationship she has where that is capable of immediately going to the core of what she's trying to talk about and then also get through to her. And it, considering we hadn't seen that much uh, Senna before this, I was happy that as opposed to so other Cora's other family members that came out much more uh, nefarious, uh, Senna felt like a mother to me, which was it's good. Cora needed it. Yeah. It's definitely it's interesting, too, because Cora has all these, you know, parental figures. She has her actual parents. She has her teachers, whereas uh, Ang never really had any of that. And yeah. Yeah. So he his guidance was mostly through himself and through talking to the spirit world. It felt very disconnected in the original series, whereas here it's actual people that they talk to and they grew up with and that they love. Um, so it makes for a very different experience. I'm about to provoke like 18 Tumblr messages, right? <laughs> a- angry Tumblr messages right now. But do you, did we know anything about Ang's parents or Ang's family? No, I don't think so. I don't feel like we ever. I, I, got I haven't read any of the like side stories where like I don't dig into wiki. See, that's why stuff. he's not a. He has a trouble fathering because he has no parents. Yeah, I he's mean, no role he, models. He had uh, he had the master. There's the book one flashback episode yeah. about yeah. his air bending master, right, and which, is why, uh, which is why which is why he had to be a master to Tenzin, and then he had no idea how to care for. Uh, well, Kaya I mean, Umi. if you th- if you think about uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, it's the story of. Two people who are the last benders in their tribe, Katara and Aang, you know, raising themselves to be the best benders like in the world and take on the Fire Lord and, and the Hundred Year War. So it's really interesting here that everybody sort of has parents, except Mako and Bolin, but I guess <laughs> we'll probably yes. get there. They're orphans. That's well, sad. considering how That's most sad. of the parents have turned out thus far, maybe they dodged a bullet. Um, well, speaking of parents, my favorite moment of this episode was kind of a throwaway, but I enjoyed seeing baby Rohan. Oh, Tenzin holding baby Rohan, and he was so happy to hold. The other thing I was thinking, though, is, um, I don't know, do we know if, here's 18 more angry Tumblr messages, I don't think we know if Rohan is an airbender. No, we don't, but he has green eyes, which... Points in the not airbender direction. I think that is going to be a very interesting reveal, <laughs> or or maybe it's not going to. But I, I think because Pema was so excited to possibly have a non-bender in her life <laughs> to take care of, and because the Acolyte's admiration of the airbenders seems to be such an essential point, at least from the premiere, and, and I mean, Tenzin brings it up again, that he's carrying on this lineage to have someone, to have a baby... That's a non-bender, I think, would be really great. But if he is a bender, I want him to, like, have a little baby sneeze soon that blows everyone away. That would be fun, right? <laughs> sure. I need a reveal. Or maybe his sneeze can be not powerful, and that's how we know. I think, I that, think that would <laughs> be a fun running joke, by the way. Like, every time he sneezes, everyone's like, oh, no, what? <laughs> what? Is he a bed? What? Was, was uh, that it? It's the new, it's the new airbending fart. <laughs> yeah, or wouldn't it be interesting if he bent something, but it was sort of unclear, how, like what element he used to bend it? He's a poop bender. A poop bender. Oh, no. What a great way to end this episode. <laughs> um, well, thanks everyone for listening. I, I I I really enjoyed this episode because it was so dense, but not in the mythological plot-driven way that the premiere was. And I hope people appreciate kind of the layers of drama going on in this episode. You know, there's a lot of I saw a lot of people take pictures of their televisions last night, wiping the tears away from Cora, uh, which I just think is a strange phenomenon. But I I, I'm, I love that people are making emotional connection to this material. That's wonderful. Um, why don't we tell the people who we are, where they can find us, and get out of here? Davindra? 
Sure, you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Devendra. I write about techadventurebeat.com, and I also podcast about movies and TV at slashfilm.com. Dave? My Twitter handle is DA7E. I write about superhero movie news at latino-review.com and also do a podcast about pop culture at opkino.com with Mr. Patches. Ooh. And I am Matt Patches. I write about movies and all sorts of nonsense all over the internet, and I put it all on my Tumblr, mattpatches.com. I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And as Dave said, uh, we record another podcast called Operation Kino about all sorts of more nonsense. It's just all nonsense. And I also recap Cora at vulture.com. Read those. Uh, And until next time, farewell.